Hey there, documentary lovers. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Melanie Dark, here with my co-host Jim Hudson, and this is Podumentary, a show where we deep dive, dig into, and unpack the details of a documentary in glorious detail. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, Jim. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the studio to record. Yes, it has. Glad to be back. Yeah, good to be back. Today, we are taking a deep dive into Amy Poehler's love letter to Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And Jim, I have to admit, as a latchkey kid, as we've discussed, whose babysitters were TV comedians, rather, like Paul Lind, Chuck Barris, and these two, this one felt kind of like a family reunion. I don't know if you saw, there's a a documentary that the daughter, Lucille Arnaz, did. Right. It's rather low budget. Right. It's called Lucy and Desi, a home movie. Yeah, I love that documentary. Yeah. A lot of this was mentioned again. So unlike the Carlin and the uh, Tinder Swindler documentaries, this one, a lot of of information that I already know about. So it was interesting. Still nostalgic. I love the nostalgia of that era. Yes. So I was still enjoying it. It felt like a deeper dive to me. Like, yes, I I too love that documentary that you're speaking about. But this almost felt deeper into their histories, back to childhood in a deeper way. And also, did you notice, and I love this, that I felt like I'd seen more never, never seen before footage and pictures. Agreed. Yes. And we've chosen this one because it was an Emmy nominee, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah, We should share that. We're on the heels of the Emmys now, and it did not win the documentary about George Carlin won. Amy Poehler is the producer. She also produced Lucy and Desi for her own Paper Kite Productions alongside, and I hope that I pronounced this correctly, I should have looked it up, Jean Elfont Festa and Nigel Sinclair for White Horse Pictures. And executive producer credits go to Giants Brian Grazer and Ron Howard for Imagine Entertainment. And Amazon Studios released this one back in March. So I guess it's about time we talk about this one. So let's get into it. I'd like you to meet my favorite redhead, the mother of my children, ladies and gentlemen, Lucille Ball. I wanted to get as far away as possible. My parents had these audio tapes. Hello, hello. Hi there. He said, that's Lucille Ball. And I said, oh man, that's a hunk of woman. I was madly in love with Desi. I've never felt that way about anyone before. No one wanted him to play my husband because he was Cuban and they wanted a real American couple. The only reason I Love Lucy exists is because they wanted to be together. A cubita bella. Uh, <laughs> They established their own studio. That's an enormous operation. Desi Luke was responsible for some of the greatest television of the 20th century. She was fearless. You realize that women could do this too. We had no idea Desi Luke was going to become what it was. Work became our whole life. There was a cost to the success. Communist infiltration in Hollywood. A lot of witch hunting at the time. His work was harder. I worked, I worked too much. I drank, I drank too much. I couldn't live that way. She didn't want to play. After all, there's no business like show business. You may quote me. (laughs) You see, when we worked, we were happy. I Love Lucy built every episode around that idea of fracture and coming back together. And I think we crave that as humans. No matter what you've done, I forgive you. (laughs) You You don't necessarily have to be a funny person to get a laugh. I'm not a funny person. They show us one of the most wonderful things happened in my life. We brought the rafters down. At the core, it's all about unconditional love. So this documentary, like so many, I think that we're going to see and have seen is really a compilation of archival audio tapes, video clips of the shows that we've all seen, but also, as I mentioned previously, new images and new footage, a lot of behind the scenes footage that we haven't seen really fills out and deepens for me the visual storytelling of this documentary. I think probably that's to do in large part to Lucy Arnaz once again, producing and and opening up the archives of what she had and making them 
available to Amy Poehler's production team. How cool to have these audio tapes in particular, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, these these people have been recorded in one form or another pretty much their whole life. And yet they took it upon themselves to create these audio tapes, assuming for this very type of situation yeah, in posterity. the future. I mean, I know my parents didn't record anything. <laughs> but, some... And wouldn't it be great if they did? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, I, I do take note of the fact that they seem to understand that this would be a good thing for posterity, that they had this really important story to tell, which I think sometimes can be hard to recognize when you're inside of yourself from your perspective. But it seems like they really did understand the worth of what it would be to hear them tell them the story themselves. And I think they're really sometimes very honest about even the darker or more difficult parts, like some of these voiceovers that we'll hear and that you'll hear and, and we'll talk about in the podcast. I'm often struck by how insightful they are given the nature of the way their relationship went, which is no spoiler. Everyone knows. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's this is why they were so successful in this medium. I was in a band, so we recorded a couple CDs doing this podcast. I've heard enough Jim Hudson, right? <laughs> this is nothing compared to what Lucy and Desi were recorded, it recorded really, forever. So I'm still wanting to do these audio tapes. Maybe that's what it takes. I don't know. I know. And, <laughs> oh, and still wanting to tell your story, which I think is universal in most of us as people that we really want to be seen clearly and understood clearly. So I, I really get that. And, you know, Lucy Arnaz, and I think it's Luck and Bill. I'll look that up just to make sure that I'm honoring her married name. She did produce that first one. Now we're here where she's on board to help with this one. And she opens by saying, you know, underneath all of this painful stuff and disappointment at the core, it's all about unconditional love. And she said now in the place that she is now in her life, looking back, she's much more forgiving with her parents and a lot more is clearer now. And I, I relate to this so much as I get older and as you really unpack yourself, you start to see your parents as their own sort of set of imperfections and reactions to their world. And so I, I related to that a lot. And then there's, we go in, the there's a Lucy voiceover that comes in over a montage of newspaper headlines. And this is just to give you a sense of kind of the beginning of this and how it kicks off. It's clips of the show, show appearances, an award show. It overplays her saying to the rest of the world, a Hollywood couple has no problems. Of course we do. But I, I don't think they believe it. If we have a house, two cars and a pool, like what the hell problem have we got? You know, and which is an interesting um, view from, from where she saw it. And then Desi says, it's too bad Lucille and Desi weren't Lucy and Ricky. Well which, is, yeah, which is succinct and, and insightful. It kicks off, it takes us all the way back to the beginning. Initially, they're in Hollywood in 1953. We see a lot of archival footage. We're on set. We get to see Desi introduce Lucy to the audience. My favorite redhead, the vice president of Desi Lou Productions, the mother of my children, ladies and gentlemen. I just love how his, his cadence of his voice and just the way he talks. I found it interesting. This was a side of Desi that I hadn't seen before because he's throughout everything I've seen, he gives all credit yes. to Lucy from beginning to end. But this one caption where he's in front of the audience warming him up, he's giving himself credit. I'm the president. Right. This is this. And I don't know if he was having an insecure moment, but it was... It was different. And to me, it was different than when I've ever seen him before. Usually, it's where, oh, it's all Lucy. She did it all. Yeah. Even though we all know that the success of Desilu and, right. and the advancement of television is large part thanks to is what Desi his. did intentionally or accidentally. There are guest commenters that are really great in this documentary. Uh, first and foremost is Carol Burnett, which is, gosh, who, who doesn't love Carol? Correct. And Carol is uh, starts off by just, you know, everyone's sort of talking about Lucy and their impression of Lucy. And Carol Burnett says she was fearless in her com uh, comedy. Bette Midler says, you saw someone so beautiful yet not afraid to be ugly. And that was rare for a woman. Put on a fat suit, a fright wig, black out your teeth, all sorts of things. And I think that's why it holds up today because it was belly laughs. That's what Carol Burnett said, which I thought was great. I will say this, and I wondered what you thought. They're, you know, they also interdisperse commentary with a lot of air quotes experts or, or people who, you know, this is... Is there this world, the world of comedy is their forte. And in particular, they have the director of archives and research at the National Comedy Center. Her name is Laura LaPlaca. And she says, I don't like when people call her work effortless. There were no advantages to being a woman in the 1950s television industry. And then she says she wasn't lucky. She wasn't a genius. She wasn't innately talented. She really built her success. She had a scientific approach to what generates a laugh. And while I agree with that, I do. She she was a workhorse and she was absolutely thinking 
thinking about her process. I disagree with her assertion that she wasn't lucky at all or or innately talented. Like, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. The truth is, for me, it looks like a cocktail of all of those things. Maybe the largest ingredient is grit and determination, but luck, talent, and genius, to me, are also a part of the Lucy recipe. Yeah, I agree. I gave a note on that, too. I don't think there's anybody trying to take away from saying that it was effortless. And I even wrote the note, well, can we say seemingly effortless? <laughs> right. Because she was, she was just so good at, at it and so natural that. It, right. And that's the goal is to come across as effortless despite behind the scenes. Right. All the effort that it's needed. So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I gave myself a note on that too. I mean, even in, you know, down the line, it talks about her first opportunity as a showgirl in 1928. You know, she talks about how she would get showgirl jobs. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit because this is on the topic of what we're talking about, but I'll come back. Yeah, come back because I have a gym. <clears throat> Jim's you have a Jim gems. Gem? Okay, you have one of Jim's gems. We have named Jim's little research uh, nuggets, and they are Jim's gems. But what I was going to say is, to the point of that there was no luck, she speaks about basically getting a shot to go be one of Goldwyn's girls simply because another girl couldn't do it. And that's luck that's in and of itself. pure luck. Yeah, and the fact that the timing was so quickly that she didn't have to do a screen test. Again, another yeah. lucky thing. So and she luck. admits it. She goes, I've never passed a screen test. Absolutely. So there is luck certainly built into her path. But now going back to her, childhood. I don't want to miss out on your gem and we certainly don't want to skip that part. We see a similar theme as we've seen before in a lot of artists, early parental death or loss and demanding parental figures. Her father died when she was young and so she was brought up by her grandfather who she described as a very kind man. Her brother is a part of this. They have footage of him and he describes their mother Dee as authoritative and also goes on to say that Lucy took on that trait, that she was always doing her own thing and that they just really struggled as a family, that they had many, many tough years financially and that they all worked all of the time. In particular, she notes a tragedy that happened in their life, which was a shooting accident. The grandfather was sued and financially ruined by. And so that created a situation where Lucy was eager to make enough money to unburden her family as their fortunes waned. Yeah, I I can't imagine a tragedy like that and then being sued because you had a gun. I mean, that's devastating. Yeah. And I don't remember the details exactly. I didn't, there's a lot to unpack, so I kind of skipped over that. I just really highlighted the fact that this seemed to really impact the family and also shape Lucy in the way that she valued success, in particular financial stability and success. Well, I I remember saying it pretty much destroyed the family. Right. I mean, they lost the house. They lost, they were financially ruined. They take us then to New York City in 1928 and give us a little peek at her early jobs, first as a showgirl like I had said, she'd get showgirl jobs, but she kept losing them because she said, and I love this, I was a dud, a real dud. Her her stage name was Diane Belmont. <laughs> and she said she was from Montana. Diane Belmont, what a name, right? Well, her nickname was Two Gun. <laughs> Why do you think? Because she's from Montana. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) That's funny. She said she was walking down the street during this time and was offered a job in California as a Goldwyn girl. Again, Jim, you know that I get fixated on this, but just this era of when everything was so new and emerging and opportunity was literally a malt shop away in so many ways. She's walking down the street. It's not like, oh, I'm walking down the street and someone wanted to take my picture. It's a Goldwyn girl. She was walking down the street. She was offered a job in California as a Goldwyn girl. Amazing. And she got on a train to do a six-week job on Roman scandals and ended up being there six months instead because of delays. And she said she loved Hollywood and never wanted to leave. You know, this is her first first time in California. I relate to that so much. You and I are different creatures in this way. I have such a love affair with Los Angeles. I have lived here all of my adult life. And when I'm away, I miss it so much. I know you don't concur. We won't go into that. I can understand it's allure. <laughs> allure. <laughs> but they play a lot of I Love Lucy clips here just as a means to sort of illustrate how she had dreams of being a movie star. And then we bring in guest commentator Eduardo Machado. He is a Cuban playwright and professor. And he basically says, I learned English from watching I Love Lucy. Desi brought a sophistication where Latinos had hardly ever been seen as sophisticated. And then he nods to the fact that there was Carmen Miranda, but that she had these bananas on her head, which isn't very sophisticated. And then there was Cesar Romero, but he didn't play Cuban. So there was that disconnect as a Cuban-American. But he said Desi came in and just boldly is singing, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the king of the rumba. I I would love love to watch a documentary about Cesar Romero. Oh, yeah. Did you look to see if there was one out there? I did not. Oh, well, we'll have 
have to dig in. It'll be on the list if there is. A little bit. They then give Desi a fair share of attention on his childhood in Miami in 1934. They arrived from Cuba. His family broke not speaking English and just trying to make money to live. At 16 years old, he said his father said, you're no longer a child. You're now a man. So he had to go get a job cleaning cages, making $15 a week. Doesn't seem actually, it seems low by today's standard, but I thought, gosh, if you're just here and you've got nothing, $15 a week back then probably wasn't too too shabby. He talks about how a local guy had a band called the Saboni Septet and offered Desi $39 a week. And so, of course, out go canary cleaning cages. (laughs) And uh, that's how he got into show business. And here is where Xavier Cugat enters his life. I know that that has a uh, little touchstone into your life, Jim. Yes, it does. Lucy Arnez says, my father finished high school by the skin of his teeth, but he got an opportunity to learn from the best. He always said he learned everything he knew from Xavier Cugat. My father was a self-appointed art collector, and I had no idea who Xavier Cugat was, (laughs) but he had two paintings that were very fluorescent and bright, and they were both by Xavier Cugat. Got one was an original called Playing Hard to Get, which mm-hmm. was a boy and a girl looking like they were <laughs> interested in one playing hard to get. And then the other one, which fit, fit more at home, was called either Tax Day or April 15th. And it was a count, an accountant with a yellow head, I think, and buried in tax documents. Why <laughs> Xavier Cugat did these. And he has a whole bunch of them. I looked it up. Now, he, are they both original? I remember those. One from was when, original. Okay. One was a signed limited edition lithograph. Where does that live now, Jim? I want to say it's in storage. Really? <laughs> yes. Interesting. But well, uh, yeah, so I, that I, I dig the name Xavier. And so yeah. I just always was interested in Xavier Cougat, even though I'm not huge in a Cuban. And a Roomba. Roomba or Cuban music or anything like that. Though I will put it on Spotify every once oh, in a while. Okay, nice, nice. One of the guest commenters here about this time in Desi's life was Charo. She talks about Xavier Cougat being the king of the Roomba, the king of Latin music. She talks about her experience with him. She says he saw me when I was 16 years old and that's how I ended up in the U.S., Cougat got discovered a lot of excellent, talented people, including Desi. He discovered Desi and he could see that Desi was a real dreamer. She says they were like two peas in a pod, Cougat the maestro and Desi the student. Yep. And Charo ended up marrying Xavier Mm. and she was either 41, 47, 49 or 51 years his junior. (laughs) To this day, we still don't know exactly how old Charo is. (laughs) So. What an achievement in the day where you can dig up anything. That's great. I know, still keeping it a secret. And the There's... fact that she's still, she's like Dolly Parton in that way where she still is utterly who she is. Like, it's like Charo is Charo today and the way she was in Love Boat episodes when you and I were kids. It's so true. <laughs> if she is 51 years younger, that means she married him when he was 15. So there is some kind of sensitivity <laughs> mm. there. Got it. Okay, got it. Well, Desi talks about it being the greatest experience in the world. He describes it as... Like, going to college. So we go through this phase and then we come into their early Hollywood era from 1935 to 1940 specifically. I titled this section Lucy and the Business. The documentary does a great job bouncing back and forth between all of them, taking us on like side-by-side timelines for both Lucy and Desi as they lead up to connecting with one another. And for this, Lucy's talking about that she was just so grateful to be any part of the business. That was her dream. So she was glad that she was just a part of it. She didn't care what she did. She said, and I loved this, they didn't have to ask me twice to do anything. I said, I want to know about this. I want to know how to do this. And in those days, there weren't working hours, right? They just worked all day and all night. And it seems like she just devoured it. And in large part, probably to make up for what she thought was a lack of conventional beauty. She said, when you're not beautiful and you're not too bright, you attract attention any way that you can. So I got a chance to work many times because I didn't mind what I did. I knew it was action and that I was doing something that no one else wanted to do. I I disagree in terms of her view on her beauty or yeah, her smarts. I, I think we all as humans struggle with that. But I mean, there you don't think of Lucy as someone who's this beautiful actress. But there are images of her in this documentary. She's stunning. She's stunning. And yeah. if you look at her, even her early sort of starlit roles where she was not being a comedian and she was blonde. I think if we never experienced Lucy the comedian, we would look back on this girl as one of the blonde starlets that was beautiful. But I think because who she became to us at the core in the DNA was this pratfall, redhead, goofy. But if she had just stayed like a a, a pretty blonde with finger curls and perfect makeup, we might not, because she's truly pretty. She was a part of this system that is 
in a way, so problematic in so many ways, but also weirdly nostalgic. I look back on it and I just think how cool it would be in some ways to be a part of it. She talks about how, you know, back then it was mom and pop studios, right? Like not corporate like it is today. Like when I worked at Paramount, we were Paramount at first and then in came Viacom and it was a whole different ball game. Back then though, you know, they acted as the the family or the ersatz family for these actors and actresses. They dressed us, she said, they trained us. They shoved us into B pictures whether we wanted it or not. And she said she just never minded it because she knew she was getting a well-paid apprenticeship, which is pretty cool because that apprenticeship also included Leela Rogers, whose daughter was Jim. Ginger Rogers. How cool is that? I never knew that. That was, I learned that in this, that Ginger Rogers' mom was a part of that world. I did learn that as well. And that would explain how Lucy said, you know, Ginger was the hardest working person in Hollywood because she wasn't there because of her talent. She happened to be there. Nepotism. Right. Whether you believe that should exist or not, that's the facts. Right. But she didn't rest on her laurel. She actually worked to become the Ginger Rogers that we would know. And it seems like maybe that's another influence for Lucy where she was influenced by that example as well. She said that Ginger was the hardest working person she ever knew. But she said that RKO was very good to her. And she was really grateful to have grown up there. She said eventually they'd send her scripts saying, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And and then one day she saw on a script in quotes, Lucille Ball type. And she just said that was the biggest thrill she could imagine. Like, wow, how cool is that? He's left Cougat to lead his own band and come to RKO in Hollywood to reprise his role in the movie version of Too Many Girls, where Lucy was playing the ingenue in that movie. And then this is how they met the convergence, finally, of their two paths leading up to this. And he gave her a line that I kind of loved. If you don't have anything to do today. Why don't you come out with me and learn the Roomba? I'm going to try that. (laughs) Smooth. Don't know what the Roomba is, but. So thus begins this part of their story, which is Lucy and Desi, the couple. And in the beginning, they had a lot of separation and him as a, you know, as a band leader, her in Hollywood chasing her dream. Producers here share a lot of telegrams, letters, etc. going back and forth. You know how those like early heady days of love are where you just miss everybody and there's that, that person and they're so idealized. And then they get married within six months. Wow. Which I guess is not probably unusual for that time. There's a, a voiceover here of a later interview of Lucy playing over that montage of archival private footage of young Lucy and Desi walking around the California desert and playing in the snow. And she says, how, oh no, she's asked rather, how would you define love? And she says, I don't know. It's such a wonderful feeling that I feel when you say that. Not that you could do no wrong, but that I would do anything in the world to make you happy. With me, it's wanting to please, wanting to devote myself to, which I think is interesting, her perspective. Is that where she then goes, I've never been asked that before? Yeah. How do you define it? (laughs) I like that part. Yeah, it really did give her a a moment. She gets a laugh out of that when she throws back to the interviewer. And and in this place, we see Eduardo Machado again commenting on Desi's side of this experience, saying nobody wanted him to have anything to do with her. It was just taboo that a white woman is married to a dark person. And and also when when you're perceived as exotic rather than intellectual... But they both were in love and they just insisted on it. And so thus begins the climbing of this big mountain for the two of them. This is what I meant by they go deeper. They talk about how they sh- they have this shared quality in their childhood that persisted into their adulthood that they were caretakers. Yeah. That Dolores, Desi's mom, was just demanding of Desi, right? And, and Lucy says in an interview, you know, she went where he went, his mom. From the time his father let go, somebody had to take care of his mother and he very gallantly did it. Lucy Arnaz, rather, says that they were both caretakers, that the first night they met, they exchanged those stories about, you know, Lucy feeling responsible for her family, needing to make up for that financial collapse, and Desi needing to take care of his mom. And so they had that sameness that it bonded them. Yeah, it's interesting. Here they are, a famous couple, and they still have all these domestic responsibilities. And Carol Burnett comes back here, and she says, the first time I saw Lucy up on the screen was in a movie she was doing in Technicolor called Dewberry Was a Lady, strange. And she thought she was so beautiful. And she and Bette Mettler both weigh in here talking about how, at that point, there was just no nod to her comedic talent. Ricky said they called her the queen of the bees. For those who don't necessarily speak Hollywood speak, the bee movies, right, Jim, were just like low budget. I believe so, yeah, back yeah. in the old studio yes. era. They had the lesser budgets that they would fill right. things yeah. with, which I wish my career got to the bee <laughs> level. 
<laughs> Listen, I might take C at this uh, exactly. point. Exactly. Um, wait, are we there? Are we at a podcast and we're sea level? What's happening? <laughs> she was a queen of the bees, which, you know, like you say, it's it's some level of success, right? And so uh, there's an interview of Desi saying, were you envious of her success? And he says, not at all, I, but I just couldn't stay out and do nothing. And so he was under contract to Metro, but because they weren't really putting him in anything, he went into the army. He did attempt to join the Navy after... Pearl Harbor, but because he wasn't a citizen, he was rejected. Well, he did spend three and a half years in the army. And then when he got out, he went on the road with his band for five years. And so for eight and a half of their first nine years, they were not together. I got to be honest, I don't know that I could do that. Nine years? That's lengthy separation. That's long distance um, on crack to me. It's at this point, you know, where she's talking about this. I want. I have a note here, Jim, that I wondered if you had ever noticed because they, they play a clip of the show and I could hear hear in the laughter, you can hear Ricky laughing at her. You know, that, I've heard that from almost everybody who's watched that show. I, I guess I hear it, but I don't know if I have the ear. I... If you went back to that spot, you'd hear it one now that I've pointed it out because it is so distinct. And I kind of love it because he's genuinely, you know how many rehearsals he's seen by the time they're filming, yet still like genuinely laughing. I love yeah. that. There's a story, I'll link to it in the show notes. I'll dig around and find it. But I know that there's a story about how their laughter tracks are still being used today. Really? Yeah, they're the original sort of canned laughter. A lot of it came from their show. So at this point, now we come to the big moment in their lives. I Love Lucy. She was doing a radio show called My Favorite Husband. And the writers of that were Madeline Pugh Davis and Bob Carroll Jr., um, who went on to be writers for the I Love Lucy show. But Marilyn, Madeline, rather, she, you know, she describes her as coming on pretty strong and that if she wasn't happy with some of the scripts, you know, she'd say so. And she was, you know, relentless in that way. And I think that just speaks to the one one of the qualities that I think made her a success. It's a hard time to be a hard-nosed woman. You're not always going to be embraced whether you're the star or not, you know. So I, I, I really thought that that was spoke to how much a part of her core personality that was. Um, and even that Jess Oppenheimer's son says that when his dad came in, that he came in and got the show organized, even though people were saying, don't go work for Lucille Ball. She's difficult to work with. Which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. And so here we are, the TV show. Uh, CBS wants to adapt the radio show. And Lucy said she'd do it if Ricky got to play her husband. Again, pretty brash. You, you and I have talked on those themes before with Carlin, where he decided what he really wanted for himself and then stuck to it, even if it would maybe make him lose out on something, right? Or present some risk to success. Here she does that, where she says, I want my husband to play me at a time when that wasn't really dis displayed a lot in terms of interracial marriage like that. She said they just wanted to be together. You know, they just were apart for so long. Yeah, uh, th that surprised me. I thought she was doing it more in terms of breaking doors for Desi. And, you know, he was cute. Cuban, but she was actually married to him. So she wanted to prove to the world, hey, look, this does, ex interracial right. marriages exist. But the realities are they just wanted to be together. Yeah. And that's where she said the line, look, you can't have children over the telephone. So I we have to be together if we're going to have a family. Yeah. And I love that even though they, that the network was against it, one of the things you see with Desi is that he's so brilliant. He really is able to, he's a master at solutions. Yeah. Strategizing for solutions to problems as they rose up. And so as they got this resistance from the network, he's like, listen, I have an audience. Come on the road. We'll write you into my act. And it's a proof of concept, right? We're going to get accolades from the, well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Do they, mm. you know, are we right or are they right? The network. And indeed, they, he said, she said they brought down the house, that yeah. they, the place just loved. Yeah. And he even place. said that at the end, or he's being interviewed by Johnny, Johnny Carson, he goes, look, you know, it, once it worked on the road in front of an, the audience, didn't matter what the studio said or we said, we're, we're doing this. It works. The people love it. And right. So, and you're right. I mean, uh, he was very, he, he never, he never just gave up. Yeah. Would go prove something. Right. And that's so much me as a video game producer is definitely an area where I could take a note from that. Right. Right. I mean, just don't take no for an answer. You, Stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, it's a really great lesson. And honestly, the power of this medium is really illustrated here. I watched I Love Lucy as a little kid. So here you are, you're a person with no preconceived notions, right? Because you're young. I didn't even think for a second about whether or not they would be married or not married. It was just a foregone conclusion to me. Watching it, I didn't go, well, wait. And you just go, it just goes to show how if a thing is normalized, you go, oh, that's just normal, you know? And really for them at a time where there wasn't a lot of competition for eyeballs, what a powerful way to put that forward, you know? Yeah, that's well said. And I think it only came to my attention when maybe my father would have said something 
something right. in jest, but probably had some <laughs> elements of really feeling that way. And right. Then, like those old school thinking. Yeah. But you're right. I was just me yeah, as a young blink. kid. Watch it. He's a handsome guy. Yeah. I'd marry him. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd marry him. <laughs> and you know what? She was not wrong that you can't have babies over the television or television. The telephone can't have them over the television either. It seems like because she gets pregnant. Now they're together. You know, they're on the road going on the road to, as a proof of concept. And by the time everything gets inked. So now they're back. This, the, the network says, you're right. They ink the show. And then she finds out she's pregnant, which is such an auspicious time to, you, know, you want to get pregnant and now you're on the precipice of this huge creative moment. You get pregnant, but she does. And I loved this little story. I don't know if, if you're listening and you don't know who Walter Winchell is, you're probably young, but Walter Winchell was like the Harvey Levin of that era. He knew he was the gossip king of Hollywood. He knew everything. He had spies everywhere and he covered it in real time. And so they they talk about how Lucy took a pregnancy test. They weren't immediate back then. She had to go to the doctor and whoever worked in the lab and saw the positive called Winchell before she ever had a chance to know. That's crazy. <laughs> so wild. I mean, imagine that you're a, a couple, you're trying to get pregnant and you're, you're channel surfing and Harvey Levin comes on and he's like, dun, 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 TMZ. Jim Fly's pregnant. <laughs> so they are now are getting started. And because this is a new medium, and then this is where I think Ricky's brilliance really gets a chance to shine. This is too new. Television is brand new. We've come out of this radio era. Best practices hadn't been established yet. Like how to solve for the various problems and challenges. It just wasn't a known quantity, right? So they literally were like rolling in, taking on a, a set of challenges that they know nothing about. And technically, there's a little technical milestone here that they talk about where because they were a California show, they were recording in California. The East Coast feed was bad because it was kinescope. I don't know the technicalities of that, but I, you know, take it on faith. And But he said that the only solution for that would be that they would then, that they would be in New York and they weren't going to do that. They had no interest. And so that's what prompted him to suggest that they film it and that the, that, that the network said, she's better in front of an audience. So do you know how to film in front of an audience? And he said, yeah, and didn't. Right. He winged it. See, that's... He winged it. He, uh, yeah, he uh, was wasn't going to wait for approval. He was just going to do it and apologize yeah. later, right? Yeah. And I know you went to film school and yep. have knowledge of that on your own. I went back to, I went to film school back in the day. Back in the day. And we were taught that the four most influential shows up to that date were your show shows. That was the Sid Caesar mm -hmm. thing. And then you had Rowan and Martin laugh in. I Love Lucy. Yep. That was because of the three camera film shoot. Right. In front of a live audience. And then All in the Family. Right. Where it's obviously satirical uh, Yeah, I worked at Paramount on. and my boss, he attended the class that Desi taught in San Diego. Really? So he had been his teacher and he, and my boss was the Hal Harrison, who I love so much. And he was the senior vice president of post-production for the television division of Paramount Pictures, which later was the purchaser of Desi Lu Studios, spoiler alert. But he talked fondly about Desi and about how he was a groundbreaking thinker in the world of television, specifically about the multi-cam approach, that three, three moving, like three moving cameras or three, three angled cameras and then a static camera and how important that was and impactful that was. Yeah, and it, it had to have been innate, right? He didn't go to film school or right. anything like that. He played a bongo. Right. He was and, a creative. Yeah, and just he just asked the question and said, why not? And, and did it. And did it. And Lucy's vo voiceover here, she says, it came about, he was a great producer, amazed all of us. <laughs> and then also she does say, in addition to this situation giving rise to his own brilliance as a producer, he also knew to hire good men they say men because it was the era. Hire good men for the job and then let them do it. Though one of the head writers was a woman, but that he didn't get in their way, right? He picked all the best. And then they go on to sort of illustrate this with he hired a veteran director in Mark Daniels. He hired an expert in lighting and filmmaking, Carl Freund, as the cinematographer. The writers, Bob Carroll and Madeline Pugh Davis, had a solid resume. Danny Kahn was an editor that I met and his sons have gone on. They're in like an editorial family legacy in, in that world. And Hal was friends with Danny Kahn. And wow. so we talked about him a lot. And when I worked for Hal back in the day, and then Mark Daniels, the director was the person responsible with bringing Vivian Vance on board. He had worked with her in the forties and he brought her on board. And they talk about how the interplay between she and Lucy really was also groundbreaking because it represented one of the first times that women characters were shown as a team rather than being pitted against each other as a plot point. And I think we know 
know that there were some dynamics. They don't go into it in this documentary, which I appreciate because it's really not the most relevant part of the story. They, they don't talk about the ways in which Vivian had resentments, etc. That, that's all well documented in other documentaries about, about that. But Vivian does say there's a voiceover and she says, or no, Lucy rather, it, it's the voiceover of Lucy and Vivian. Lucy says, you know, I approved of you since the first day I set eyes on you and, and you know you were hired without my seeing you. And, and I love that Vivian basically said, yeah, you know, I've often wondered, Miss Ball, if you had seen me, dot, dot, dot. I mean, she really is. You can kind of hear the playfulness between them in that way and the push yeah. and the pull. And then they talk about Bill Frawley. And I, I wondered what you thought here because Ricky's voiceover here about William Frawley says, you know, no one wanted him to play Fred, which boggles my mind because he is Fred ultimately right now in my brain. So I can't imagine somebody else playing Fred. But he says nobody wanted him because he hadn't done anything in a long time. He was older and he had, I guess, a well-known drinking problem. And that Desi said the more they knocked him, the more he wanted him. Thank God, right? <laughs> Thank God. Well, that, I mean, that's scary, right? We don't want him because he hasn't done anything in a while. Well, that's right? catch-22, right? Well, have him do it. Then he's done something. John Travolta, Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah, like, it's... that's no reason to not reach for somebody as the talent that's needed. And apparently, and this is also well documented, they do not beat it over the head here. They just mention it. But the fact that, you know, Vivian w- was 22 years his junior. It's funny because I thought of this as somebody who's, you know, been in theater. I just thought, well, I'm not identifying. Like, this character I'm playing can be living a life where this character's fine with a much older husband. It doesn't have any commentary on me, but you can see that she really couldn't split that out. Yeah. You know, I, I struggled with this because I was always in the impression that William Frawley, Frawley was an established actor and probably was a curmudgeon and cantankerous and Vivian, you know, probably, mm-hmm. you know, rubbed, he rubbed her, you know, he was probably mean to her. Right. But her comment was, I think, inappropriate, saying that no one would believe that I would date this old man. Married to this old man. I mean, that's affecting his career. Sure. And so I have a hard time with that. I mean, how many shows have we seen King of Queens and Honeymooners where, you know, in real life, this person would not marry that person. It's such a common trope. So that that was a realization to me that kind of disappointed me. And otherwise, I thought I was a big Vivian Vance fan. I know. Always playing, you know, the second fiddle to Lucy and playing it still to the hilt. And again, you might be correct. We don't know the full 360 degree look into this dynamic. He could have been cantankerous and curmudgeonly and annoying. And thus she had no love for him and was felt free to say, no one's going to believe I'd be with that old dude. You know, you don't, you don't know the genesis of that kind of a perspective, but it is well documented that these two people did not get along. But look, did it affect the show? No. Like they were great as Fred and Ethel. I, if nobody told me that, I would never have known. And, and maybe it helped. Who knows? But I digress. That's, you know, in terms of Ricky's contribution, bringing Bill Frawley on board is one of those. And that he, you know, of course, is now in the history books as an innovator, as we've talked about with the three camera, um, the three camera approach. Lucy talks about here about how the newness of this, that no one knew the great potential of being able to come into millions of, of living rooms and the love and the close feeling that that would generate in just one performance. I think we're learning this now, right now with social media, how powerful it is to be able to just reach people immediately. And it's not just love and warmness that you can generate. <laughs> right. Well said. <laughs> right. We're a long ways down the line there. This is where Norman Lear kind of weighs in. I love Norman Lear and I love to hear him reflect on stuff like that. But he comes in here and just says, look, this show showed that women could be the dominant character, that he saw it personally and fell in love with her immediately. And that at the same time, Desi certainly brought a new understanding to the male part of that marriage, but that we fell in love with Lucy and Desi. You know, it isn't race you're thinking about. He agrees with what you and I said. You know, you just don't think about it. There's just this big human lesson in that. And I love in terms of filmmaking here, this was like a part where we just saw a montage of tons of coverage of the rise of the show. So you really get this sense the producers just start to push through crowd screaming, articles, the headlines, headlines like, you can't help but love Lucy. I love Lucy tops the Nielsen poll. They really were this just juggernaut. Like it took off. And at this time, she's pregnant. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it at the end of the second season, I think? And he says, oh, uh, you know, Oppenheimer, they're 
producer says, I was wondering what we were going to do for the third season, and now we know it's going to be your baby, which was controversial at the time, which seems weird too, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I guess it doesn't when we consider that we we start this show by watching them sleep in separate beds, but they didn't think the network would let that happen. Jess Oppenheimer just was like, of course they would, which really speaks to his personality. He just knew they could go through, but they couldn't say the word pregnant. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> that she could say expecting, and then... There's very little of Desi Jr. He's in here, but he's not in here as heavily as you might think as one of their children. But he talks about how, you know, his mom was pregnant with him here and how his birth exactly coincided with the episode of Lucy's birth, which I just think is a little bit of a the universe at work. But he says here, you know, it feels like because he was in his mother's stomach at the time that they were filming. He says, it feels like I was a part of something before I was even born. And you have a thought on that. Well, I just, the way he said it, it, it gave me the, like, he was, oh, I, I just remember filming when I was in her stomach. It's like, ah, oh, come on. I don't know if he said he remembered. And so that's what it sounded to me. I mean, I don't remember what happened last week. I definitely don't remember what happened when I was in the womb, so. Well, another really cool thing that I learned in this documentary is that this is what brought about the advent of the rerun, that it wasn't done in television until them, and that it was, again, a Desi idea. While we're off and we're having this baby and she's recovering, they just replayed favorite episodes and discovered this is a marketable approach. It's amazing. 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 Advertisers must have loved that. Wait, like, we don't have to pay for production again and we're going to generate marketing eyeballs? Fantastic. But it's almost hard to believe that this rumba performer I know. came up with this. I mean, that seems so obvious now, right? right? right. What all the Harvard mass media geniuses that didn't come up with this? How, why would Desi come up with this? It's, it's so great. It's amazing. So they're obviously at the top. They are experiencing this juggernaut. They're outpacing in terms of viewership. You know, Eisenhower's inauguration, the Queen's coronation. They are leading in terms of drawing an audience. And it's at this time that this dark cloud kind of moves in over their life, the dark cloud of the McCarthy era and accusations of communism. And they play a montage of all kinds of, you know, what we've, you and I as documentary lovers have seen over and over, which is footage and stills from those hearings. And Lucy's voiceover comes over this saying, like, this was a horrifying thing going on in the country where the House Un-American Activities Committee was just accusing people of communism and just dragging them in and making them defend themselves. And she says there was a lot of witch hunting at this time. And they just took people, even that they absolutely knew were cleared of anything like this and focused on them. Yeah, I love that era. I love the red baiting of the 50s and just the craziness and all the careers that were destroyed. I know. From this paranoia that was just so out of control. Yeah. I can watch endless documentaries on that. Well, I did think of you because I saw I saw your guy. I saw a tricky dick yeah. in there. Always got to need a Nixon sighting in a documentary. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I I don't know if I'd heard that Lucy got caught up in that. I did know that. I don't know if I knew that, and I, I kind of like that era. And, you know, red hair, <laughs> red communist. I go, come on, that couldn't really happen. But, yeah, it makes sense with her father was always supportive of the— Grandfather. Grandfather, sorry, was supportive of the working man. Right, that, that he, requ he required them to register as communists, and they did so, right? He was like, we did it for Grandpa. He wanted us yeah. to— Like, okay, I mean, gosh, who of us haven't— done things we wouldn't necessarily do because of our parents right? <laughs> or your family. She had been a registered communist in 1936. One time when she was younger, um, her brother does come on saying, you know, grandpa was for the working man. She was interviewed at it at great length. I guess this is the point. She was interviewed about it at great length and cleared. It was only once a newspaper got a hold of that info and then ran a headline. By the way, another thing I learned, did you notice that the ink was red? Yeah. I'm like, what? On I had that. no idea they did that. So it's sort of like calling out, hey, this is a communist article. So she had been cleared, but then this paper runs this headline. Now that threatens to ruin them and destroy everything they've built. And once again, once again, here comes Desi to like, the rescue. A problem was his absolute shining moment to me. Like you really see that when there's struggle on a problem, this guy, he just knows how to meet it. And he basically takes charge, invites the press to their house. So smart. And then takes them all. I, I saw in another bit of coverage that he actually like shuttled them all. Like provided transportation then to the show. They were an entire audience of journalists where then he has J. Edgar Hoover call in and they pull the mic, like the phone to the mic and the whole audience hears him say, she has already been cleared of all this. Just so smart. You've got the entire press in the room. And then I loved this. They said that he then, after, after J. Edgar Hoover 
says this. He then famously says, the only thing read about her is her hair, and even that is not legitimate. <laughs> she gets a standing ovation, crisis averted. Yeah. Amazing. Here is this man who communism ruined his family back in Cuba. That's why he had to leave. They were a right. wealthy family right. that lost everything. Yeah. And so when communism, he's confronted with it again, instead of taking it personally and getting enraged, he just calculates the best solution and right. solves the pro- problem. Had to feel pretty good considering, to your point, that communism had absolutely destroyed the, the revolution in Cuba, had completely decimated the lifestyle that he knew and yeah. the future that he hoped for. Yeah. And, you know, and in terms of the future that he created then, they went on to create Desilu Studios, which is amazing. You know, Norman Lear says they established their own studio. It's an enormous business operation. And he took the lead in that. And that when I Love Lucy became a mega hit, this whole studio then filled up with sound stages because everyone wanted to use what they called the Desilu technique, which had to just be so gratifying from his perspective. For sure. And and Johnny Carson, there's a great clip here. I love to see. I'm a huge Carson fan. When he comes in, you know, he, he it's an interview and he says, the remarkable thing about you, Desi, and your life is that you came from Cuba and ended up as one of the biggest producers of television shows here in Hollywood. And you had many, many big stars working for you. And he replies, I mainly had Lucy. <laughs> I love that. Right? Yeah, And absolutely. that's the theme throughout. I think his business acumen and her brilliance is just that magic combination that they needed to be what they became. And and Mark Daniels, the director, his son says, you know, my father said so many times that Lucille Ball was the greatest actor of the 20th century, that he directed Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sally Field, Paul Newman. And no matter when he was talking about this, he would still say she was the greatest actor he ever worked with, which I thought was a real feather in her cap. And she, you know, at this point, they talk about how she says, you don't have to be a funny person to get a laugh. She's not a funny person. I don't believe that's true. I just think that she's not jovial. And I think that that's a different, right? She wasn't a goofball, but she was, she had the gift of humor rather, you know, not to beat, not to beat that over the head too much. Well, I think the point is, you know, they even earlier in the, in the documentary, friends of Lucy said she wasn't, you know, she wasn't a funny person. Right. You know, but the character is, and I think that goes to her being a great actor. She clearly was a fantastic comedic actor. And believability. She said she had to believe everything she was doing and they worked really hard on creating that. And so now they have this big studio. They have their own show. It's, you know, it is what it is. They've got shows underneath them. But here, the beginning of the end here, where there's an imbalance of focus on the two of them, um, Oppenheimer's son says, you know, Desi was, actually it's a VO from Oppenheimer. I don't know where it comes from, but he says Desi was hurt by all of the publicity. And he says that the success of I Love Lucy was heavily attributed to her artistry versus his, you know, skills and that that he struggled with that. Lucy then, Junior, Lucy Arnaz, comes in to say no matter how hard he worked or what a great businessman he was, at the in the end, she was the clown, you know, and that that gets the focus. The show was built around her and it started to create strain that that he wasn't happy in the relationship where his wife was more powerful than he was, and not just more powerful, just really more lauded, I think, at that time. We, we've come to laud him now, but that he, you know, as he started to get stronger and stronger in the producing side, he just started to be away more and more into escape. But, I mean, that's of his own doing. He, yeah. He hit his objective, his sure. goal. Yeah. And then it started to bother him. I mean, he knew the path to success. He right. got him there, and then it soured on him. It's a hell of a drug. It's interesting. It's a hell of a drug success. You and I, I have talked so. about this in our own personal lives where when you start to notice that your success is strangling other parts of your life, can you wake up and back off? And they couldn't, right? They they couldn't. And it's tragic because the truth is their couplehood is a really inspiring thing. And it's devastating to watch it pay the price for that success. When you're looking back in, you know, hindsight's 2020, for me, that's that big lesson of like, what do you want more? And what will you give way to and not give way to? And they really couldn't give it up. It was just so tantalizing. Yeah. Like, and, and also they both had reasons to need it so deeply with her family experience and losing everything, with his family experience and losing everything. It was like, yeah, love and yeah, family. But like, how do we not, how do we walk away from this thing that was the, the greatest thing missing from our, you know, our childhood experiences? So you get it in a way, but it's also tragic. So, you know, she says in VO, Lucy says, you know, his work was harder and he began to feel a greater need to run off to his boat or golf vacations or the racetrack. He always just had to go, go, go. And and Oppenheimer in VO says his home life was unhappy in the release that she had or that that she 
had, her home life rather, was unhappy. And the re- release that she had was her work. You know, she'd come in and rehearse, 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 day in and day out. And I do know that in other accounts of this, the people who worked with her lamented that, how much they would get calls to suddenly come in late or come in early because she needed to focus her attentions on the show because of her own personal frustrations. And she says work became her whole life, you know, which is sad. They then sold the show to CBS for $5 million. Imagine I did not look up what $5 million was in that time, but I will and I will add it to the show notes. But she didn't want to quit. And and he did. You know, he says she didn't want to quit. She'll never want to quit. Why doesn't Bob Hope quit? He, he asks, because he gets bored fishing because he can't get a laugh out of the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that they see each other as what each other are and they don't begrudge the other person that thing, even though it doesn't align, right? She points out that he needed time away and to escape and she's not really coming down on him. She's just being matter of fact, that was the way it was and it was a problem. He's saying the same thing. Of course, she doesn't want to quit. That's how she is. That's how she's built. He says, I'm not judging. That's their life. They enjoy that. I happen to like other things than being in front of an audience, you know? So you start to see this divide, the separation go. They tried to move the show to once a month, like a special, which is confusing, right? It was more like a comedy hour or something. Yeah, I didn't get that. Was that because, and you say this later, they take the show to Connecticut in the country or something like that? Yeah. That that, never made sense to me. And then, (laughs) but they talk about some comedy, you know, variety show. I don't, I've never seen that. Me neither. Me neither. But, you know, apparently this change in the cadence had an effect on the quality of the show. You can imagine. You're not writing constantly. You're not, you know, it's now that's showing and that the difficulties between them had become visible on the screen, which I agree. The clip they play there, it's tense and it's, it's too much realness of their disdain for each other's way. Yeah, have you ever watched those episodes in yeah. the country? That, that just doesn't make sense. And he always seemed MIA to me yes. in those episodes. Yes. Right. So that now makes a lot more sense. And her, their daughter says, you know, I think there was a cost to the success that they attained with I Love Lucy, that they didn't know how to just appreciate the joy of doing the show without making it bigger, making it better. It just mushroomed and got out of hand. In the machine. Absolutely. They then purchased RKO, which cracks me up. Everything's falling down around them. They buy a studio. <laughs> buy a bigger boat. Buy, buy, yeah, right. For $6 million. And he even says, so this is along the theme that we're in, Jim. I didn't buy RKO. I bought RKO. Not because I wanted RKO, but because I only had two choices, either quit or get bigger. I mean, quit. Yeah, exactly. Why is it quit really right, an option? quit. But he says, that's the way business is in the U.S. You cannot be half-assed successful. It made me feel good to know that the term half-assed goes far that far back. <laughs> um, they grew within a span of about five years. They go from filming I Love Lucy as a pilot to operating the largest independent TV company in the world. But, but I mean, think about that. They bought RKO for $6.15 million. I know. That's a house in Palisades, right? I mean, right. that's nothing. No. I know. Back then, they bought an entire studio. It's wild, right? Yeah. And it was over here in Colbert's. Culver City. Yep. He explains there that he was essentially working like 14 hour days or longer and and his daughter, you know, comments that at this time, as the stress mounted, it was just harder and harder for him to even just function. So he just started to drink more, you know, just drinking more. I, I, I like here that she gives her parents fair shrift, right? She says, my mother had her own problems, which did not make the situation any better. She was very hard edged, which was the last thing he needed, right? They became the last thing each other needed, which is sad. And that he hurt her by his actions and she hurt him by her words, right? Yep. And he then says, you know, I got a one track mind. The biggest fault in my life is that I never learned moderation. I either work too hard or play too hard. If I drank, I drank too much. If I worked, I worked too much, right? <laughs> I mean, we can relate. I yeah, think a lot of us. I, lot of I'm going to tell a very quick little anecdote. So I worked on the Paramount lot. And so Lucy and that presence, Lucy and Desi, it's all over the place. In fact, it, you coming in through the building that they actually walked in and out of their, where their offices were, into that entrance, it's a walk-in entrance for Paramount. And as you walk through on the right, there is a, the most incredible framed photo of her and Ann Southern in a golf cart that says painted Lucy on the front. And they're like coming at the photographer and they're just wild-eyed. And it's the best. I was in love with that photo. It's also anecdotally the same building that when Tom Cruise's offices were there, that's where they were. The Cruise-Wagner offices were there. And there is a tale that the that the tour guides tell. Their offices are there. They're still there. And there's this strange, small, standalone little office. It's separate from the building. It sits off to the side. It does look out of place. And they explain that she had it built. Now, this might be apocryphal, so who knows? But this is what the tour guides would say back then. She had it built as her assistant's 
a separate space for her and her assistant to be. So they'd have their own workspace. But what it really was is there were windows that had a clear view of his office and the back part of his office so that she could see whether or not women came and went. Really? Yeah. That, which is, that's a long way to go. Construction. Yeah. But yeah. The, so they're falling apart. And that that kind of goes back to his one-track mind and, and his lack of moderation. And they went to therapy a bit. They talk about it. They went to therapy a little bit. It didn't really stick. He didn't think he needed it. And so, and but she said she got insight in terms of her ownership of what she'd done wrong, which I respected. And then they talk about, Lucy talks about how they went on this last family vacation. And they look old for their age there. They really look worn out, these two people. They've got these kids. There's footage of them on this cruise. Everyone just looks wrecked. I mean, the parents look wrecked. Yeah, there's there's a shot uh, on the dock after the boat. And Lucy looks. Just, I mean. She's done. She's so done. And she's, she says she's done. Yeah. Right. She's like, they, I knew I was done. And those poor kids, I feel for them. You can just tell Ugh. they know something's not right, but they're trying the best, right? Because they're on vacation. A whole month in Europe. That's how oh. people used to vacation back then, if you had money anyway. And Lucy, there's a video where she just says, I was, it was a miserable month and yeah. a miserable trip. And that's where I decided that would be it. And Desi says he was the one who wanted out. So clearly they both wanted the same thing. He says he brought it out and laid a plan for months ahead of time so that it could work. Very Desi, very on brand. But he just said he didn't want any part of it anymore. And so they were done. And then they cut to just the last of these Lucy shows, the ones up in Connecticut we talked about. It's interesting that push-pull of people where they're fed up with each other and so done, but just sobbing, like really emotional as they filmed this last one because they weren't going to be together anymore. So you're choosing not to be together, but you're just really so deeply sad about this loss. Everyone's in tears. The cameraman's in tears. You know, they're trying to be funny, but they'd break down and cry because everyone knew it was their last show together. And and then, you know, Lucy says, look, my parents went at it for all the right reasons. Lucy, our, our Lucy Arnaz says this. She said, the only reason that I love Lucy exists in the world is because they wanted to be together. They wanted to have a family and make marriage work. And so they made this show as a way to achieve that. And now the rest of the world has it and they never got what they wanted. It's just this gift to the world that they ended up sacrificing for, which is so sad. They, when they decided, they sat the kids down in the, in the, in the living room of their Palm Springs house and just said, let them know, like, we just can't get along enough to stay together. She really felt sorry for her dad. I related to that. I tend to have a lot of sympathy toward my dad in a lot of things. And so I kind of felt for her in that way. But she says, look, the minute they separated, they were kind to to each other. The hard edge between them, you know, pressure's off to be a successful couple. And then it was done, right? Um, That was it. That was it. They did keep working together. I learned, I did not know that. In my brain, their divorce was the end of their working relationship. So it was kind of cool to know that they continued in their partnership and that continued to have respect for each other in a creative way. Well, that's, I, it's, and I wrote a note. I mean, it's because they love their work. And yeah. so they want, they didn't want to lose that despite the marriage right. ending. And they loved each other as creative people. Love, in, right? respect. Respect, sure. Um, Anyway, the legacy of Desilu Productions is fantastic. They went on, you know, either filmed there or produced by Star Trek, the original series, Mission Impossible, The Andy Griffith Show, Dick Van Dyke Show, That Girl, The Untouchables, right? Did you watch Hogan's Heroes? Hogan's Heroes! (laughs) When are we doing a Bob Crane documentary review? I can't wait for that. I might have to get in a guest host for that. There's a little lasciviousness there. (laughs) My Three Sons, I mean, I can't even say My Three Sons without going da-na-na-na, da-na-na-na. I I was never a fan, I'll be honest. (sighs) I didn't, couldn't Over. couldn't relate, even though Fred Fred was the first uh, grandfather slash housekeeper. Oh, that's oh yeah. yeah. Uh, people are not even going to know what we're talking about. We're so aged. Well, William Frawley, <laughs> who played Fred, he was in My Three Sons. Okay, so this takes us now. We're rolling really toward the end of the after years subsequent to their divorce. This is where we again we have Carol Burnett commenting, and she's talking about this is where Gary Morton enters Lucy's life. That she said she went she went to see her show and she went backstage to see her afterwards, and Gary was there. And that Lucy said to her, "You know, kid, he makes me laugh." Oh, I thought Gary. I thought Carol was integral in Gary and Lucy meeting. Is that not? Is that a mistake? Well, this is, I wrote it exactly as she said it. I went backstage to see her after a show and Gary was there. And she said, you know, kid, he makes me laugh. Got it. Okay. Okay. And I probably like most 
people didn't really ever accept Gary because <laughs> we were all Desi Lucy fans. Yeah, Desi. They, they talk about how he really wasn't highlighted because people don't want to let the dream die, the Desi Lucy dream die. Um, I guess he, you know, he was dedicated to her and asked her to be his girl. Ultimately, they went on to get married. Lucy says, you know, I know it broke my father's heart, but he, you know, he himself ended up remarrying after a few years. He was married for 26 years to the woman that he uh, found. I forget her name. And and her mother was married to Gary for 27 years. She said that they were married to those people longer than they were ever married to each other. And in the end, it was a really good thing for both of them. I see you have a note here. <laughs> it's very profound. This note just says marriage sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Marriage is tough. And I, I think those two marriages were probably better lined up for success because they both, they knew all they all knew their place in these new relationships, right? right. Yeah. Lu- Lucy was going to be the spotlight in yep. the Gary world. Right. But Lucy and De- Desi, they came up through it together and that's right. probably where the challenges existed. Yeah. And this era is where the variations on her show, I was never into the subsequent variations. The Lucy show where she and Viv are really the focal point. But I also learned in this that Desi was a producer of that. Again, really cool to learn. Lucy says, Lucy Arnaz says, my dad produced that show, that they were already divorced, that her mother called him all of the time for advice. I also, that just made me, it just touched on that sort of nostalgic part of my heart that they were still connected in that way, respected each other so much. There's a voiceover where Lucy's saying, I've never seen anyone really get down to the root of a story and give you the fundamentals and what we're after like he could, you know, that he could see what was happening in a story. And it was a strength of his, but apparently he didn't enjoy it in these years. It was more of a chore for him. His daughter says he just never enjoyed it like he did in the early days. And this is the part where she says this that goes back to what you and I are talking about. She says where they were figuring it out. Because the truth is, I think he shines as the problem solver. Yeah, It's really where his bread and butter is, you know, personally and professionally. Honestly, you know, it's there that he got really depressed and even more depressed, drank even more. And at that point, his health is just deteriorated. And he was no longer able to function. Apparently, he just took it too far. And, and that was a real shame because no one did it better, you know. And then Machado comes in here and says, you know, but be, but but Lucy, because she came from nothing, she just had to keep going. She's just older now, but just pressing on. She buys Desi out to that point. And now she's the first female head of a studio, which is incredible. Right. Um, and goes on to produce things like The Greatest Show on Earth and the Dan, you know, hosts the entire Danny Thomas empire at Desi Lou, Doc's Climb. But she doesn't really care about this like he did. What I liked is uh, she went through the list of all that's happening in the Desi Lou studios. And when she comes to the greatest story ever told, she goes, Jesus, Jesus Christ is parting the waters out there on the Culver uh, 40 acres. So we're happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. She being Lucy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I thought that was an interesting. She's talking. She's addressing the board or whatever. Sort of the state of the business. And so we're happy about that. We got Jesus Christ parting the waters out there in Culver (laughs) City. That's going well. She, you know, their daughter says, you know, look, my mom loved the creative process when she could be the Lucy character and Desi, her dad was running the studio. That was just the best for her. You know, when she had to run the show without him and run the studio without him, she didn't like that at all. She could, but she just didn't care about being the first woman anything. As soon as someone made her a good offer for that studio, she took it and that was paramount. They made her a solid offer. They bought it. And so she's done with that. Like she then steps out of that era of like ownership, et cetera. They don't really talk about what her post, like I love Lucy post-Desi Lou life was like, but I think we, I mean, that's, you know, it, she retired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and unfortunately, Desi was the first of the two of them to pass. He developed lung cancer. He had decided to forego more chemo. And so his daughter, Lucy Arnaz, was taking care of him. And she said she called her mom and said, I think maybe you should think about coming down to Del Mar. I don't know how much time he has left. I really loved that, again, they're divorced and they're no longer a collaborative duo, but the fact that they still care for each other so deeply that they belong to each other. I guess that's a better way to put it. They, they're not together. They still belong to each other in a way that she's the one being called to say, hey, come see him, you know, come down. I don't know how much time he has left. And that
that I loved this, that when she got there, she put her mom in a room with them, left them alone, just watching their their old shows. That's sweet. And she heard them laughing. Yeah, she could hear them laughing, which I just think, how cool to be able, imagine, you know, your parents don't get along, but you can sit them down and let them watch videos of the best of themselves. Like, look what we were like when we were good together, yeah. you know. That's a pretty great way to spend time together for the last time. And she said that her mom told her that when she left, she cried all the way home from Del Mar to Los Angeles. So hard. It's a, the human experiences were so complex and it's so tragic. Really felt for her there. And then about a month later, as he was really doing badly and still conscious, but she wasn't, Lucy Arnaz wasn't sure how much longer. She called her mom and said, look, I think if you want to say anything at all to him now is the time, you know, and she held the phone. She describes how she held the phone down to her dad. And then she leaned in close so she could hear. And she heard her mom say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then there's this pause and she just says it again. I love you. It's so it's the thing. And that he died a little bit more than a day later. And in reflection, she realized it was their anniversary. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. So he was gone. And that's, you know, and then five days later was the Kennedy Center Honors. He had just died before the taping of that show. And, and Robert Stack gets up and reads a dedication. And it's pretty poignant. And I think a surprise to her, at least it looks from the look on her face, they keep pointing the camera up to her. It doesn't seem like she knew that this was going to happen. And he reads, I I love Lucy had just one mission. Lucy gave it a rare quality. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit between the writers, the directors, and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90% of the credit and split the remaining 10% between the rest of us. Lucy was the show. Viv and Fred and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I love Lucy was never just a title. Oh, Jim. Yeah. It got to me. I wept through this part. Yeah. I was just, oh, God. It's it was, hard not to. It's really a, an emotional sort of pinnacle. She covers her face when she realizes what is being said, that he written this thing for her. And you could see that she's, it's emotional, right? She's just on the heels of him dying. She's covering her face, not her face, but like her mouth, the bottom part of her mouth a little bit. And then they do a, a standing ovation and she's like, woohoo, and she's, she's saved by it. And there you go. That's yeah. the end of that documentary. Um, that's where they leave it. And it plays out, the credits play out over audio tapes, uh, further audio tapes of her parents talking about their, their memories and their times. Yeah, and it's, I mean, they've been gone, what? I remember, I went to Hollywood the night she died and then we put stuff on her star. Yeah, I was in college. Well, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, we went out there and did that. I was really glad we covered this episode. We will go through and put as much as possible in the show notes, you guys. We really appreciate you guys getting here till the end. You know, lots of the things that we mentioned, I typically like to go in and provide links for you guys in the, in the show notes. So if you're interested, just click there. Or if you have something to share, something else to let us know about, definitely give us a shout out either by email at hey at podumentary.com or, or any of the other places that we exist. But once again, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Podumentary is executive produced by me, Melanie Dark, and produced by both Jim Hudson and I with the support of our fearless production coordinator, Kate Dark. The podcast is recorded and engineered at New Vine Music Studios in sunny Santa Monica. And our theme song is the 1950s movie intermission classic, Let's All Go to the Lobby, licensed courtesy of Filmax Studios. You can find more episodes of this podcast and smash that subscribe button at podumentary.co. That's podumentary.co. We'd also love to hear your take on this documentary. You can use our website's recorded message feature to do that, and we might even feature your message in a future episode. If voicemail isn't your thing, you can shout out your comments, criticisms, or documentary requests on Instagram. Facebook and TikTok at at Podumentary and on Twitter at at Podumentary Pod. If straight up old fashioned emails more your speed, drop us a line using hey at podumentary.co. And if you've gotten this far, you're one of us. See you next time. <laughs>